Hello and welcome back to the Precision Microcast. Josh and I have taken a bit of a break, but we are back and in a very special way. Today we'll be interviewing our first guest, and we have a very special one from Inalight. This one's been cooking for a little while, but both Adam and I are extremely excited to present episode 15 of the Precision Microcast. Inalight is a diamond-turning lathe, machine tool builder, and ultra-precision service provider based in Aachen, a city in northeastern Germany located on the borders of the Netherlands and Belgium. They've been operating for a little more than a decade now, building some of the highest quality ultra-precision machines in the world. Inalight's CEO, Christian Wenzel, joins us to discuss all things diamond-turning and allows a peek behind the curtain of what makes their machines so special. Christian, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, I really appreciate your time. But before we go any further, please introduce yourself in your words and in light and what you guys do. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Christian Wenzel uh, and I'm the CEO of the Inolite company, uh, a company here based in Aachen, Germany, right on the border to the Netherlands and Belgium in the Wild West. Uh, and we're 50 people by now. Uh, have started our business in the field of diamond turning as a job shop service and continue to grow into actually also developing and producing uh, diamond turning machines. Um, we're active in the fields of the machine development. Along with it, there's a lot of software development. We, we have the electrical power cabinets that we build in-house and basically cover the full spectrum. So, Christian... Um... I first came to know Inlight through uh, a few of my friends in Germany who work at Kern. Um, and we started talking about super high-end um, and ultra-precision diamond-turning machines. And Inlight was uh, one of the top players, if not the top player in the field. The question I instantly had was how a, such a young player relatively um, – in the field started making diamond lathes. So what was the origin of uh, Inlight making these diamond turning lathes? Well, we started off as a spin-off from the Fraunhofer Institute for Production Technology here in Aachen. And uh, we basically commercialized the activities in diamond machining to make mainly mold inserts for injection molding polymer optics. And back in the days, uh, we've been buying a used more nanotech machine in order to, to be capable of, of machining and offering the service. And that was a very precise, great machine, solid mechanics um, that we are still using and that is still valuable. But we've seen limitations in the control system for the more and more complicated surfaces and, and superimposed microstructures and everything. And we've seen the machine as a basically lab platform. So all the, the, the process steps that had to be done were designed to be done manually and sequential, um, step after step. And for that reason, we've been spending a lot of time on the machine to do non-productive steps. And... Um, being active for automotive industry, as many companies are in Germany, uh, in the field of LED headlights, that's how we got started. 
those people will ask you about your productivity. And what they actually want to say is, how do you get cheaper from year to year? So when we, when we came to the point that we needed to ramp up our capacity, we said we, we need that same accuracy, but we need more productivity. Yeah, we, we need to be as precise, but we need more productivity. And um, well, at Fraunhofer, we've, we've been developing uh, one-of-a-kind special-purpose machines. Um, so we've never really uh, had the product, but uh, just uh, prototypes. But basically, we learned the skills. And um, it was a big decision for us to say we'll, we'll move that way to develop and build machines and basically change our business perspective from a service provider, mold making, into a company that develops products and sells products. And uh, so we've, we've been stepping into that field of diamond turning machines with the key aspect to combine precision, which was the only focus of the development so far, with productivity and, and uh, better efficiency. And, we, we basically keep that slogan from the old days until now, and we've been always saying uh, driving productivity and ultra-precision technology, that's the, that's the difference. And uh, that's how we basically got in. So when you start developing a new product or a new machine, uh, where do you start? <laughs> we start with pure technical excitement, I would say. Um, we, uh, as I've mentioned, we combine the business fields um, of mold making as a service and by now the development and the, the production of machine tools. And uh, for that reason, some people would say we're all, our own competitor, but you've mentioned Karen, they have the same business model. And I think the big benefit of this approach is that you basically are forced to stay really close to market needs and market demands and no new technology, new technology questions from the market. And um, that helps to, to focus on the needs. And um, we, we don't have a clear cut process to do that. Our first machine that we've built back in the days was the IL 600. That's still the largest machine that we have so far. And basically, if you would translate it into automotive uh, wording, we've, we've developed a Mercedes S-Class as the first machine to, to get started. We've integrated air conditioning. We've developed our own water conditioning. We have introduced zero-point clamping systems, which is totally new to, to the diamond turning world. Um, we've built a larger stroke Y-axis, vertical axis, 250 millimeters and uh, have, have done many things differently. And basically, we've been totally excited about the machine. We still use it today for production. And we learned nobody would buy it. That was, that was kind of disappointing um, because during sales um, or selling a machine, you will bump into the procurement guys um, that uh, ask totally different questions than only technical excitement. They ask you about how many machines you have in the field. They ask you about service. They ask you about references. And those are pretty stupid questions. Uh, if you don't have any machines in the field, it's very hard to dodge them. And uh, so for that reason, looking back, it probably would have been better to uh, develop a Volkswagen Golf um, instead of the Mercedes S-Class. Uh, but it wouldn't have been as much fun. So that was our initial start, the technical excitement. And um, 
the first machine we actually managed to sell was an alignment turning machine. So it wasn't necessarily pure diamond machining, but a total different application. And that was a customer request. And I honestly asked the question, what is an alignment turning machine? Um, when, when we got approached and, um, this, this first machine we managed to sell was a totally different story. So we, we had a, uh, very specific customer request and we found an innovative solution to basically answer and do the development for this request. And I think the combination is, is the one that, um, basically drives us being close to the customer and uh, understanding the needs and finding your own uh, technically different and practical solution for the for the task yeah so the two sides customer driven and and um, technical excitement ideas and, and trying to do things differently Do you find that uh, through this technical excitement, um, do you find that you're often educating potential customers into novel applications as well? The, the customers, that's what I've learned. That's what we've learned from the beginning, like talking about the IL-600 um, that nobody would buy and it's still a great machine. We have to be very close to the market and the customer needs. And the customer needs are very different and we're learning a lot from being close to the customer. Um, this is for sure. Um, they, they teach us about demands. They teach us about things that are good, that are not good. And uh, talking about our customers and the applications and diamond turning, I would say that they're very different. If we, if we compare the diamond turning of infrared lenses for thermometers or, or, or also um, LiDAR cameras, for example, infrared cameras, um, it's, it's, the challenge is the contamination of the diamond turning machine. Yeah. Being productive, uh, basically handling the contamination, such work correlates to the, the milling of uh, graphite electrodes, I would say, in, in a milling machine world. And um, that's, that's really difficult to handle. Um, something that we never would have asked ourselves, uh, driven from our job shop stuff. Um, totally doesn't compare to the work for the people in ophthalmics. We have, we have several machines running in, in contact lens industry. They need to make mold inserts, small, different geometries. For a lot of them, they need to be very productive and uh, have challenges. And if, if we look at automotive industry that we're quite close to, it's, it's an LED headlight, freeform shape with a superimposed microstructure in steel. Not high volume, but very complicated. And uh, they all have different challenges. Uh, they all have different needs. And we're trying to find individual solutions for them. And I think if it gets into the solution, um, that's where education starts. To teach the customers that they can do things differently and that we are better off with different uh, approaches for such uh, requirements. An example um, that really uh, drives us every day is the, the performance of next level control systems. Yeah? Um, that's purely educational. We, we hardly find customers that have a good and deep understanding on how such a control system works, where the limitations are, 
And uh, sometimes I feel like a nerd if I'm talking about it, but it's decisive and it's really uh, helping to, to go ahead and uh, to basically achieve things that could not have been achieved before. Another example, uh, significantly uh, less complicated than the control system, is our clamping system, the nanogrip. Um, diamond turning is dominated by a vacuum vacuum chuck for the workpiece and a T-slot table for the for the tool. Yeah, and we've been introducing uh, uh, zero point clamping systems, which is a standard basically in regular machining. Um, we, we're using a very accurate one, but uh, of course there is significant benefits in, in the entire production chain. And I'm quite often surprised how much education and also persuasive words are needed um, in order to, to tell a customer that they should use a perfect high precision current milling machine, for example, to get that mold insert into shape. Yeah. Diamond turning machines are meant to be precise and also productive in being precise, but they're not meant to, to remove a lot of material. So what we're doing is we're combining the high precision milling machine of Kern with our diamond turning machine through that nanogrip clamping system. And all of a sudden we can very quickly uh, generate a very, very accurate mechanical pre-shaped part there's no more need for alignment. If we do freeform, we can basically move on from the current milling machine to the diamond turning machine. And we just give it the finishing touch to, to adjust the optical surface or to introduce a microstructure. And uh, this, this really changes productivity. You, you take away all the non-productive times on the uh, diamond turning machine of aligning and so on. And still, there, there's a lot of customers that say, we want our vacuum chuck. You introduce the nano grip, and then they they go back to the vacuum chuck, which which is compatible. You can use the vacuum chuck, and I don't want to talk bad about the vacuum chuck, but nevertheless, um, it's educational. And yeah, let's see, let's see how that's going to work out. You had mentioned earlier uh, your control systems, and it looks like you use Beckhoff control components, but I imagine you have your own software involved at some point in the motion control system, and it also seems you have a lot of staff dedicated to software. And I was wondering what were what were some of the challenges and what were you hoping to advance in that realm? Okay, well, we've, we've been looking around when we got started um, for control systems, and that actually reaches back to the days of Fraunhofer. And the Beckhoff control system in general is a very open platform, um, but still covers all the professional industrial standards. And this is a great combination. If you, if you compare that to Heidenhain, to Siemens, to Bosch, to Fanuc, those systems are very well designed for what they're what they're meant to, and and I think as, as long as you stay with the standard uh, functionality of the systems, you'll be in good shape. But if you want to move away from that, uh, life becomes difficult. And Beckhoff is, is significantly more open. They're using the latest high performance hardware. So we're running i7 quad-core computers, two of them in our standard machines. And if you want, you can get computers up to 64 cores in order to be really high-performingly calculating. And uh, these systems are modularly expandable. 
Um, they're, they're Windows based. Um, so we have the chance, and this is a big difference to the other control systems, we have the chance to integrate uh, high-level programming functionality. So we're, we're using MATLAB, we're using Python, we're using C++ and C Sharp um, in order to add functionality and to, to also integrate metrology and do all kinds of things. So... Uh, the system has real-time capabilities, so they have their own uh, twin cut. That's what it's called, twin cut applications. And uh, in general, it allows us to develop and integrate our key software um, features that I think make us different from all the other suppliers. So first of all, if you're asking me about motion control, the motion control actually in our case doesn't take place on the backup level, but we're using um, a servo drive based motion control. Um, and our servo drives that cooperate with the backup controller are based on an FPGA, Field Programmable Gate Array. So uh, we're running our, our position control loop at 100 kilohertz. We're running our current control loop at 100 kilohertz. So everything basically that's taking place at the uh, servo drive with the performance of the FPGA is running at 100 kilohertz. So basically the machine asks the axis or the, the servo drive asks the axis 100,000 times per second, where are you and do we need to correct the position or are you in a good position? Yeah. If you compare that with a regular machine controller, there probably would be 5,000, 6,000 Hertz and uh, that's significantly slower. Yeah. Um, another decisive difference between between our control system and the ones of the competitors is our drive, direct drive functionality. Um, so we uh, we have the option to run the backup controller in a regular CNC mode. So compares to any other machine, you can run G code, you can program in G code, everything is fine. And if you cut a sphere, if you cut some some simple rotationally symmetrical part on a lathe, that's totally sufficient. Um, but our world is not usually sphere and easy, but it's usually freeform, it's superimposed microstructure, and it's a lot of data handling. And the Direct Drive 3D is a software development that uh, basically covers the the total CNC calculation routine. So um, we, we uh, basically do the toolpath planning and we come up with the G code. So basically a, a, a line of points um, in the machine space in order to, to guide the tool. But the CNC would break down these points into the individual motion profiles of the single axis. And in order to do that, you need to calculate geometry. So in, in order to be at a certain point, you have to have a certain velocity or you have to have a certain position of X, Y and Z axis. But you also have to calculate the velocities of these axes. You have to calculate the accelerations and also the derivative of the acceleration, the, the jerk, uh, in order to make sure that the interpolating axes are at the right point at the right time. And that makes the entire CNC routine significantly more complicated 
actually, because all these derivatives are, are difficult to calculate. And Direct Drive 3D does basically the same job, but it doesn't do it online as a CNC, but we, we calculate offline. And for that reason, we, we have more time to do it. We have uh, less tasks to cover. For example, we don't need to look ahead as the regular CNC has in order to, to avoid collisions or any, any obstacles. And um, in, in, in general, the Direct Drive 3D allows us to feed the machine controller 10,000 set points per second. If you compare that to a Heidenheim controller, it's 500 set points per second. So it's a factor of 20 um, of more information that we are able to provide for the machine controller. Again, if you have a simple sphere, no need, but if you do microstructures in an LED headlight, if you do state-of-the-art ophthalmics, this is really decisive. And this, this kind of switching off the control system, the CNC, and streaming pre-calculated data uh, down to the FPGA drives is something that the back of control allows to integrate. I'm not sure if that would be able with, with other conventional controllers yeah it's i mean so I'm, I'm a mechanical engineer so the hardest group to keep track of is the software group um because you don't see any advantage or any 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 um not advantage how do you say that? you don't see any advancements and so on there's a computer screen there's some some crazy looking text on there and you don't know what it's going to do and it's it's very difficult to keep track of the the work, um, it's very difficult to judge on software bugs and how long it's going to take for them to fix. But in the end, it's it's the strongest tool that we have in order to differentiate from our competitors. And uh, that's for sure. And as I've said, the Beckhoff platform is, is a great platform because it gives so many chances to do things differently. And not to go by the by the standards like you have to use our CNC and like if you have a regular CNC and you you have to tune the parameters in the CNC that isn't necessarily logic. I mean, there's like these these parameters and, and they do something to the CNC controller and the toolpath planning, uh, but you don't necessarily understand. But it's going to influence your your part in the end. And with this open architecture and the software developments that we have, we, we learn more and more about the behavior of the machine, of the data, as I've said, and this is this is really great. Well, that's a pretty sophisticated approach. I had not heard anything like that ever before, and it's uh, pretty remarkable. Um, and then you also have your own CAM software to suit. Yeah, we're like uh, Direct Drive 3D is, is the, the, let's say, the alternative to the CNC controller. Um, the ILCOM 3D that we're developing for the machines um, is a CAM software, but it's a little bit more than that because it interacts with the machine controller. Um, so basically, the, the ILCOM derives from the task of alignment turning. And that's, that's what I've said. It was the first machine that we've sold. Um, Alignment turning basically is not to generate an optical surface, but you have a glass lens that has been glued into a metal mount. 
And what you want to do is you want to measure the optical axis, the real optical axis of the glass lens, and you want to machine the metal mount uh, in a way so that after machining, the cylinder of that metal mount perfectly matches, is aligned to the optical axis of the glass lens. And that's CAM. Yeah, we need toolpath planning to cut that metal mount. But that metal mount is misaligned and we need to measure on the machine and we need to do the correction on the machine in order to individually um, basically adapt the toolpath. And uh, that's why I've said ILCOM is not a regular COM program that runs away from the machine, but it, it works on the back of controller and it controls the inline metrology on the machine. It gathers data, for example, this optical axis. It would use that data to online correct for some for some toolpath, and it would do the the final machining and uh, and the, the yeah actually cutting. We we've started to develop this for the alignment turning, not really knowing what we were doing. That's a, that's that's a typical situation in the beginning. You get a task and you 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 think of a solution. And then you grow with it and you have customer requirements and you add on to it. And uh, we, we've, we've, I would say the first two years we've been adding on, but not really totally understanding what kind of potential that was. And uh, also after three, three and a half years, we've basically totally been reworking the architecture of the software. But ever since it's been growing and we've been integrating all this functionality, inline metrology is what I've mentioned, the direct drive, let's say CNC alternative calculation uh, has found its, its position in ILCOM. So you can basically just choose uh, CNC mode or direct drive mode from ILCOM while you're programming. There's um, very important for diamond turning, there's the entire thing of, of compensation. So basically if we cut an optical component uh, we would take it down, we would measure, and we would try to compensate in order to basically um, react on tool misalignment whatsoever. Yeah. The, the, the machine has a, a repeatability in the range of 50 to 60 nanometers. So if we take one part, cut it, take it down, measure, put it back on, cut it, and so on, do that a couple of times, we would stay within 50 or 60 nanometers. That does not mean that we achieve that required accuracy in the first shot because you could not adjust the tool that precise. And so the, the compensation is a standard procedure in diamond turning, which has been integrated in ILCOM. And all those functionalities you would not find in standard CUTCOM procedures, I think, and they would not necessarily interact with the machine controller. So we've gone the way to, to develop our own CAT software um, for specific applications. And looking back, this has been a very valuable step and is a, is a key feature for the machine. That's the functionality. If we compare the machines, mechanically precise is not enough anymore. And the software enables us to distinguish the most, I would say, from the competitors. Well, that's a great breakdown. Uh, 
you had mentioned earlier that you're using a zero point system to increase productivity and, and aid in setting up the part. I was wondering if you could uh, share some details on that because it seems quite precise compared to some of its uh, competitors like in a row or a 3R system. Yeah, we've, we've uh, been investigating um, zero-point clamping system back in the days at Fraunhofer. And uh, I remember that there was extra effort. There was like hard metal inserts and so on and uh, integrated interferometers to really get them super precise. Mm, if you're selling machine, it's always a compromise between what is technically achievable and what our customers are willing to pay for. And um, I think we've been looking for a zero-point clamping system. I, I, I know that we said that the vacuum chuck and the T-slot table are not the answer to, to, to productivity and, and uh, enjoyable working on a machine. So we've been looking for it, and we had to have a, a reasonable... Um, very precise clamping system, which also was able to spin. We're building a line. We, we IL six hundred can be used for ruling and milling, um, but I would say we're building ninety percent or ninety five percent turning machines. So the the zero point clamping system had to to be able to be adapted to an air bearing spindle and run up to six thousand RPM is what we can do right now. And uh, we, we've been testing different systems. This is a system that we don't manufacture, but uh, we have a, a strategic um, contract, basically. And we get, let's say, the, the best 10% of, of uh, tolerance matching. And uh, we're, we're very happy. I think a life without is not, is not imaginable for us anymore. And also many other customers. Uh, I've, I've mentioned the combination of the current milling machine and the diamond turning. Uh, there's numerous fixtures that we've built specifically for customer parts and the uh, and the uh, alignment turning. We have different fixtures. If we if we get in special metrology or artifacts to reference, um, they're all basically mounted to a nanogram pellet, and we bring them in. Excellent. Uh, what ways are you combating thermal growth? Is it uh, machine design, active cooling, uh, software, or a combination? Well, thermal growth is one of the big enemies in, uh, in diamond turning machines, but I think any other machine also. So, um, yes, we're, we're fighting on different frontiers. We're um, using new materials. Uh, the granite uh, machine bed is... Uh, quite slow on thermal growth, and it's quite good on thermal growth. So that's that's basically the the foundation. All our machines have a have a big granite bed. Um, we are using new materials, um, ceramic slides. We're uh, doing tests on carbon fiber reinforced plastic slides right now, as they're lightweight, as they're let's say tunable on their thermal growth behavior. And uh, there's also the design aspect. Um, we, we try to build the machine symmetrically and with the short, short distance stroke. So there's no material to basically grow. And then there is the field of active cooling and uh, controlling. That brings me back to the control system, actually, because we started off with buying a chiller that was standalone and we had an air conditioner system that was standalone. 
we've gone the way to basically build all this periphery by ourselves and we have integrated all of them into the back of control system. So in general, we have water conditioning. We have up to four channels for, for different water control. So we can control the spindle differently from the axis, from the oil, from the air conditioning. Um, we've built our own air conditioning system, circulating air conditioning system in order to control the air temperature inside the machine. Um, we control the oil temperature that is going into the axis. And we could also control the pressured air that's running into the machine. That's something that people don't necessarily think of. But if you have a compressor to run your, your spindle and you, you shoot eight bars of pressured air into that spindle and that compressor is outside in Shanghai, for example, I've been there in the summertime myself and it's super hot and humid. That air that goes into the spindle doesn't have the same constant temperature. So we also offer a unit to basically control the pressure there. And the, the integration into the backoff system for all of these um, basically means we have the same PID control loops. Um, we have a very close integration. We can save costs. We can control and design the systems in a way that we can basically best tailor them for our machine needs. But the biggest benefit is in service. If we have the machines in the field and something goes wrong, we have the chance to connect to the back of controller through a VPN tunnel. So it's a safe and secure connection to the machine. And as all the control loops, all the sensors and all the, the, the actuators for the thermal control are basically um, combined on the back of, we have access to all this data. This totally differs from having a standalone chiller, having a standalone air conditioning system. If these fail, you would not necessarily have the chance to basically reach out to them and take a look at the data because there's no VPN connectivity. And this, this integration has, has been beneficial for the, the performance of the machine and for the integration, but special focus really on service and, and uptime for the machine and supporting the customer because we can really read all the data from the machine and do analysis over here that, that uh, is, is very focused on finding the errors. So we've talked a lot about thermal growth and uh, all of the errors that accumulate during the machining process. One thing that when we do high precision milling or high precision machining um, is we integrate some sort of feedback loop in the workflow. Uh, so for us, a lot of it revolves around um, optical compar comparators and vision systems. What does that workflow and what does that feedback loop look like on an Inlight machine? Okay, we have that. That's a question I think that I cannot answer with a single answer because we have very different inline metrology. Um, we're using tactile sensors, the Renishaw sensors. We're using chromatic confocal sensors to scan the surface. Uh, one of our favorite sensors, I would say. Um, as I've mentioned, we're using autocollimators um, for measuring optical axes. Um, and um, so all these sensors are 
basically available as modules, mechanical modules, and they're all represented in ILCOM. So for each sensor, you basically have different routines to, to program based on ILCOM um, in order to scan a surface, to touch down and measure diameter or distances in between and so on. And there's Routines where you just get a single value, that's quite easy. So if, if we want to measure the diameter, you can basically program the number of points that you want to touch down on the diameter, and that's going to give you the value. Um, the routines become more complicated um, if, if you really want to get information about the surface, yeah. waviness or shape deviations and so on. So basically, if we spiral scan, um, an optical part that we have cut with the chromatic confocal sensor, there is not just a single value, uh, but there is there is a whole point cloud of data that you have to interpret, that you have to use in order to compensate and so on. And um, we're we're developing a new software, or it's it's already existing. I'll analyze um, that basically um, focuses on three things. First of all, the the Analysis of the initial data. I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, the analysis of the machine data that can be recorded while machining and the analysis of measurement data. So I'll analyze is basically about handling large point clouds. Yeah. If we, if we uh, record with a chromatic confocal sensor, we're generating 1000 points per second. That's, that's basically the, the, the bandwidth of the sensor. And so you can easily generate a huge point cloud that needs to be handled and that needs to be looked at. We're not looking at big errors. We're looking at very small errors that need to be filtered, that need to be identified. And uh, so there's a lot of challenge in this data handling. And uh, that's that's a new software we're supportively uh, adding to the ILCOM platform. And uh, that will grow into this process chain. So. Summarizing, there's easy sensors in line metrology. You get a single value. You can program them through ELCOM, and then you, you basically use them to, to correct diameter, for example. And there's more complicated sensors to really investigate the surface you've been cutting. And uh, this process chain basically requires I'll analyze where you have a lot of functionality to really go into depth on surface analysis. You mentioned I'll analyze. Uh, could you expand on what I'll analyze is? Uh, yes, um, I'll analyze is, um, or, or let, let me put it in a different way. If if we talk about high precision machining, if we talk about single digit nanometer RA and shape accuracy of a hundred nanometers or less, we require the precise machine. We require a great control system to basically handle all this. But we assume that the data that we get in order to machine that surface is perfect. And unfortunately, the experience shows us that data very often is not perfect and that it is really difficult to find problems in data. Yeah. For example, if we take a look at an LED headlight, um, there is a superimposed microstructure and the optic design software would not jointly calculate the base shape of the LED headlight and the microstructure, but they're being calculated differently and merged subsequently to one surface. 
that merging is not super clean. And if you look, take a look at the at the data, if you zoom in, you will see that microstructure has uh, unintended overshoots. They're they're super small. They're in the range of 100 nanometers, maybe 50 nanometers. But as our control loop is very tight, and that machine interprets such an overshoot as a supposed geometry and it's trying to follow it, that will really stress the the machine and the control loop and everything. So data that we get is not necessarily clean. And I'll analyze is meant to do the analysis of the data. You can load customer data, you can load your own data, and you can do different analysis to the to this data. You can zoom in, first of all, you can handle very big point clouds up to a couple million points. Um, you can calculate all the derivatives on the surface. Sometimes you don't see that in the pure geometry, but the derivative or the second derivative of the surface uh, data will give you a clear-cut indication that there's something wrong. And I'll analyze also allows you to do smoothing of a surface. So that talking about education, that was a prior question. That's a that's a really different approach. Um, most of the time, if you have shape deviation and it's it's a dynamic issue, people would slower down dynamics. They would basically cut slower. But if the data is not okay and the data that you're trying to cut is not the data that the optical designer actually wants to have, we can ask the question, why don't we change the data? We're not changing the data by millimeters. We're changing 30, 40 nanometers in areas where, where data is wrong and is not um, the way it should be. And this will reduce a lot of stress to the machine. Going back to the sample uh, of the LED headlight, um, we've been smoothing the, the surface data um, and we've been changing 60, 70 nanometers. It was a reduction in the axis acceleration of a factor of 10 at that specific point. So IL Analyze is, is designed to, to see that customer data, the, the design data and in the initial state and to learn about it and to optimize it. To, to basically better understand the machine behavior based on the data that you feed it. The second one is the FPGA drives from the machine allow us to constantly plot the machine data. So a nice example is we're, we're talking about following error of a linear axis and people give you value, yeah? And that's the value at standstill and maybe it's it's, it's a recording of one specific time of the following error. But the following error to us is a 3D plot. If we cut a surface, we constantly plot that following error to the surface. And we get a color map of that following error to understand the changes and the, 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 the variation of the following error over that entire surface. And that will teach you Basically, where do you have dynamic overshoot? Where do you have to slow down? Where do you have to change geometry whatsoever? There is there is a big toolbox and you individually have to choose which option to, to take. But uh, that's the other function of I'll analyze, plot the data from the machine, get a good understanding. Again, it's a humongous 
point cloud or a data set that you generate while plotting following errors or currents of the drives and so on. And you need to handle that data. And the last one I've already mentioned is use that same software to, to basically gather the, the sensor information from like the chromatic confocal scanning um, or, or an LVDT uh, sensor and to, to dive in, understand and see what the real machining has been causing. You know? So that's I'll analyze. I'm not a software guy. The key feature is to handle large data data sets and to, to be fast, efficient, and flexible on, on doing operations, just like building derivatives and, and doing cross-sections and all that kind of stuff. Uh, in your website, I see a lot of mention of the IL Sonic, and I was hoping you can expand and inform our listeners what it is and what capacities it brings to the machine in terms of materials it can aid in cutting. Yeah. Uh, well, diamond turning um, is great because it combines very high accuracy with very small surface roughness. And if you polish, you can get very small surface roughness, but you will kill your shape. And for, for other high precision machining parts, you can, you can uh, basically get high shape, but not perfect roughness. That's the big benefit of diamond turning. The drawback is that diamond has the hardest material in the world and, and uh, monocrystalline orientation and super sharp cutting edge consists of carbon. And uh, so basically diamond cutting is limited to non-ferrous materials. So whenever you try to cut steel or, or iron, um, that, that carbon from the diamond will basically turn into graphite into your pencil basically and the atoms will or the the, the electrons will start to diffuse from the uh, from the diamond into the steel surface so that's that's the scientific explanation maybe uh, in practice or practically uh, the, the 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 lifetime of a diamond cutting steel is probably in the range of five to ten seconds and then it's dead so uh, there is no chance to really machine relevant parts uh, by conventional diamond machining. The ultrasonic assisted cutting basically uh, enforces uh, an elliptical tool motion to the diamond. We vibrate the, the diamond uh, at 100 kilohertz. And this elliptical shape um, is tuned or the, the speed on that elliptical shape basically needs to correlate with the cutting speed in order to have an intermittent cut. I've, I've mentioned the diffusion process. For diffusion, you need temperature, which you have in the cutting zone. You need pressure, which you have in the cutting zone. And you need time for the, for the electrons to basically move. And with the intermittent cut uh, due to the uh, ultrasonics, we take the, the continuous time uh, away and we yield the diffusion process. It still takes place, there's still tool wear, but um, those 10 seconds of uh, regular diamond cutting of steel will turn into, let's say, 10 hours. It depend, it's a natural diamond, so it depends on the tool and it depends on, the, on the, the cutting conditions. But in general, I would say it could be up to 10 hours. So all of a sudden you have the chance to nicely cut uh, relevant parts uh, directly with diamond. And uh, that was the, the key development for us in the field of LED headlights. Um, 
LED headlight has totally changed automotive lighting. It used to be xenon with glass lenses. Uh, there was four of a kind. And with the LED headlight, it was injection molding of polymer lenses. And automotive industry being a little bit rougher than regular optics, I would say, uh, not trying to offend, and, uh, and uh, being uh, more productive, needed steel mold inserts with optical quality finish in order to have the robustness. And uh, that, that development of the Isle Sonic basically enabled the cutting of LED headlights in the beginning. That was the main application by now. It's widely used in our own um, job shop machining and also for our customers. Outside of assisting ferrous cutting, does ultrasonic diamond turning have any other benefits with any advanced or experimental materials, things that aren't readily machined uh, either with diamond turning or with conventional means? We've been doing test cuts in glass and we managed to actually optically finish uh, MBK7 glass uh, by ultrasonic assisted cutting. Um, the, for, for the steel, the main intention is to avoid diffusion-based tool wear uh, by the intermittent cut and by basically taking the time away from the diffusion process. Uh, there's another aspect, um, as we're vibrating 100,000 times per second, that little tool on a, on a let's say, two micron stroke, um, we very much change the chip formation um, during cutting. And if you're talking about brittle materials, um, there's um, the, the, the question of um, minimum chip thickness. A brittle material like the glass would behave brittle um, for regular cutting conditions. But if you reduce the chip thickness step by step, you will turn that brittle regime into a ductile mode after going below a certain certain value of, of minimum thickness. And due to this, this high frequency tool motion, you can influence the chip thickness. And yes, it is beneficial also for, for brittle materials if you adjust the right cutting parameters. For us, they're very, very slow. So um, ultrasonic assisted cutting of steel is a slow process. We're limited to, let's say, cutting speeds of four meters per minute. Um, if, if we go towards brittle, it's even slower. So. Uh, it is beneficial. It doesn't work for every material. We've been trying a lot of different materials that didn't show really benefits. Um, but even if it works for the brittle materials, the, the productivity will go down. We're alternatively developing laser processes, totally different topic, but basically covers the field of hybrid machining on, on ultra-precision machines. And the laser integration has a different focus. We, we intend to change the material properties to soften the material and to be able to cut the, uh, the, the um, brittle materials because of changed material parameters. So this is the IL pack or IL pack? Exactly, exactly. There's, there's uh, two activities going on in introducing lasers to the machine. The IL pack means photon assisted cutting. We're running the laser um, uh, towards the material that we want to cut. Um, we have a, a, a laser head, basically, the alpac head, 
that combines the laser and a barometer. So we uh, actively measure the temperature and the spot where the laser beam hits the material. And again, the back of controller allows us to integrate a control loop and to adjust the laser power to have constant temperature in the, in the work zone. And we modify the material. So this is quite interesting for cutting tungsten carbide, which is being used for embossing glass lenses. We're, we're, we're polymer people. 95% of our world is injection molding. But uh, the mold making for embossing glass is quite interesting. And these people exclusively grind, uh, but grinding is a very complicated process, especially in these accuracies. And the alternative basically is to, to use uh, laser assisted cutting, which works nicely for certain, for certain tungsten carbide materials, binderless tungsten carbide materials. There's many different compositions on the market and some of them react funny to laser exposure and others behave just fine and you can have nice optical surface finish. The other activity in integrating the laser to the machine is a femtosecond laser. So we're not using the diamond anymore, but we're just using the accuracy of the machine. And we focus that femtosecond laser sorry, um, into a volume of uh, fused silica glass. And we basically uh, change the material properties inside the glass in that focal spot of the laser. And so we, we inscribe a geometry inside the glass and um, a subsequent etching process um, has significantly higher removal rate in the modified glass sections compared to the regular bulk material. So it's, it's a factor of 500 up to 1000. So you can selectively laser etch so you, you write with the laser the, the, the contour that you would like to have. You have subsequent etching and you can generate optical components out of fused silica glass. And this is, this is a very interesting ongoing R&D development uh, together with another Aachen-based company, Lightfab. And uh, yeah, we're, we're quite excited to see how that's going to work. So that was a long answer to your question. The, the Isle Sonic was our initiator in the field of hybrid machining on ultra precision machines. And uh, we're moving on with the lasers to, to change material properties, Isle Pack, and to, to basically inscribe into bulk material for, for laser assisted etching. So we've covered a lot about the machine itself and uh, all the processes that make um, or contribute to making an accurate machine and an accurate platform. But you have this whole other sphere of influence, which is the facility. So I'd like to just pick your brain a little bit on your facility, uh, but also your customer's facility. So to start it off, um, how important is the role of the facility the machine is housed in for manufacturing? Well, it depends on what kind of parts you want to make. Um, and and uh, like diamond turning is not diamond turning. There's a broad spectrum on diamond turning. If you, if you do regular standard infrared parts, if you do alignment turning, um, the requirements are, let's say, not as high. 
And uh, if we ask our friends in Taiwan about cell phone camera lenses and they're asking for shape accuracy 40 nanometers, they're asking for a roughness of 0.3, 0.4 nanometers, RA. Um, everything basically gets in line and needs to be perfect. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the key aspects are temperature um, and floor vibration, I would say. Um, for the temperature, we offer the air conditioning system. Back in the days, I remember buying a Toshiba machine at Fraunhofer, and you didn't know who was dictating the rules, basically. Uh, we've been trying to, we've been trying to um, ask for the, the machine performance, and they always answered, yes, we can do that, but you need to make sure that there's no vibration and that there is no thermal change in the room and so on. And so in the end, you ended up uh, paying almost as much for the room equipment and the room conditioning as you've been paying for the machine, and it's been a back and forth. Um, so we've been trying to, to address this in a different way so that the air conditioning is an integrated functionality of the machine. We try to air condition and water condition the machine only. We, for the big machines, for the IL-600, we have a humidor, as we call it. So it's, it's also a power cabinet that is a shelf, basically, for fixtures and parts. And they're integrated into the airflow of the air conditioning system of the machine in order to have constant temperature. But you don't necessarily have to temperature control the entire room to highest level. Yeah. And I would say that works for most of the applications in the field. Again, if you have super special high accuracy requirements, uh, you need to make sure that there's no temperature differences in the area. But other than that, I would say standard applications, a machine room with half a degree degree temperature constancy is good enough. And if you're below, very good, but not necessarily required if you have an in-machine air conditioning system. The air conditioning system, to answer that question, um, makes sure that the outlet air from the air conditioning is constant to 10 millikelvin. That's about what we can achieve with our system. Um, and that's due to the sensors. Yeah, the sensors have a resolution of three, four millikelvin. Um, after that, there is only noise. Um, so if, if, if you'd have better sensors, I think the, the control loop and the, the approach could also be better, but they become horribly expensive if you want to be more precise on that. Uh, um, for the vibration, all the machines have pneumatic feet. Um, the standard configuration is passive uh, pneumatic feet. So we basically have a mechanical valve um, that controls the height of the feet and levels the granite. Yeah. Um, they have an eigenfrequency of 2.8 hertz, so everything above is basically covered quite well. Um, down below, if you have really low uh, vibration, uh, it becomes a little bit more difficult. But we, we offer the service of actually measuring at site. Uh, we have an accelerometer and a special software to do this kind of measurement and to investigate on the foundation because it's not an easy question. Alternatively to the passive feed, we offer active feed. Um, so the, this mechanical valve uh, is basically being replaced uh, by a, 
um, electronical valve. Each feed has a, has a position sensor, basically an LVDT. And we measure the position and we can adjust the PID controller of these uh, active electric magnetic valves in order to react individually on certain noise that's coming from the ground. Um, so that's, that's again, important if you, if you cut like the cell phone camera lenses or so. We, we uh, really calm down the, the granite and, and uh, decouple. One of my favorite things in doing the research for this uh, was seeing the name of that option. Um, you called it IL Angstrom, the active vibration dampening. Uh, and under the, the sort of information on what that machine option is, uh, you have levitation accuracy. And I've never seen that before. And it totally, totally blew me away that you say that it's five microns of levitation accuracy. That's quite incredible. Well, the, the, that's what we've learned. The granite looks massive, but the granite is not stiff. Yeah. If you, if you want to cut, or let's say we, there was times when we were proud to cut one nanometer RA, and we thought this is really great. And if you tell the guys from, from cell phone camera lens manufacturing, one nanometer RA, that's, that's a pre-cut. And in the end, they would like to have 0.3, 0.4 at maximum RA values for the, for the surface finish in a dynamic process. So this is called decut. They're cutting um, a, a cutoff round, basically. It looks like a D from the top. And... Um, to be in that kind of level of surface accuracy, the, the following error and all motion or, or, or let's say unintended motion inside the machine is, is killing you. And uh, the granite needs to be really stable. Um, we've de been developing the, the wireless axis for the IL-200. So we have short stroke axes with a ceramic slide that are not using... Uh, how do you call that? Cable schlep? Or like... Uh, a, yeah, cable followers. Cable followers. They're not using cable followers anymore. We do not have any cables on the side of the slide. So the linear motor, we're moving the magnets and the primary coil is, uh, is fixed to the granite. And the oil hydrostatics are inside the, the um, brackets that basically uh, reach around the slide. Um, for the for the scale, the reed head is fixed, so there's no more cables reaching out to the to the uh, slide, and for that reason, we're capable of having a following error at plus minus zero point one nanometer, and that's why we why we uh, call it I Langstrom package, and this is basically the combination of this super high tuning of the drives. It's the active feed to totally avoid motion of the granite and to basically actively counteract any any vibration and it's the decoupling the the, the total decoupling of the power cabinet so yeah that's that's a customer specific development that we've and research that we've been going into probably wouldn't have done that on our own but it was very challenging and very interesting to learn and uh, to investigate um, a few years ago, I remember seeing your new facility. You had posted some pictures of the end construction, and it looked like there was a lot of uh, foundation preparations, a very thick slab, uh, 
lot of uh, attention to detail went into considerations like that. And I was wondering if you wanted to to share some of the the features of the building you're currently in. Yeah, we, we've uh, we've been lucky, and we had the chance to uh, buy a lot over here in Aachen, which is not easy. And uh, we we could basically inherit the building for the offices, but we've been building a new shop floor. And inside the shop floor, we have uh, 400 square meters of diamond turning area, which we have been treating quite well in the in the foundation and the air conditioning system. So those those are the two ones. I've I've said we're taking care of these with the machines, but like let's say any any imperfections that you don't have to take care of are are very welcome. So we're, we've been trying to give it a really solid foundation and a good air conditioning system. The difficulty with the foundation is that foundation depends on the uh, surrounding neighborhood. Yeah, is there a train running by? Is there a big road where there is there is semi trucks driving? Uh, is your neighbor running a press or something like that? So, uh, if you, if you're standing on a, a new lot where there's nothing on the ground, it's kind of difficult to do the measurements and to predict this and. Uh, we wanted to be on the safe side, so we've basically taken out um, 80 centimeters, 0.8 meters of ground, and we've added 160 tons of steel, and we've un- added 600 cu- cubic meters of, of um, concrete and built that plate. It's a single plate that is floating on rubber mates, or, or not rubber, rubber... Uh, cushions, let's say cushions, and that is totally isolated from the from the rest of the shop floor where we're building the machines and where we're running all the other stuff. So this is this has been our precaution, let's put it that way, and we've been doing the measurements, so we were, we're very low on vibration, and this was an expensive but very important and good uh, decision to basically be safe on that side. And the air conditioning system, is interesting, especially nowadays. Um, we've we've been uh, working together with a company here in Aachen. We have a circulating flow air conditioning system, so we uh, constantly pump air into the room, take it out, recondition, pump it in, and then we add some fresh air uh, in order to have enough oxygen and uh, to to uh, be on the safe side. And uh, this is a system that allows us to, let's say, keep 0.2, 0.3 degrees Celsius in the shop floor for, for really nice conditions and cutting. So where do you see most of your machines being sold to? I know you touched on some of the applications and some of who your customers are, um, but do they represent these cell phone manufacturers and, I guess, mold insert manufacturers? Do they represent all of your business? And I guess the follow-up question to that is, why did they choose diamond turning? And the follow-up to that is, why did they choose Inalite? So we're, we're, we're still new in the market. I mean, we've been selling diamond turning machines for not even 10 years, nine years, I would say. First one was 2013. So it's not totally established and long-term. We, we have machines running in mold making. Uh, this is our background. Um, we have machines running in direct optics, so mirrors and, and projection systems. Um, we have a crowd of machines running in infrared, 
totally different business. The alignment turning that basically brought us into the market is really nicely picking up right now. And there is more and more interest. Uh, we're getting into the US with this topic. Um, and I also observe more and more requests in the field of high precision mechanics. Um, so the, the repeatability and the accuracy of the machine is needed for optics, but it's also being appreciated for uh, high precision mechanics. And we, we see requests over there. And uh, why did they choose diamond turning? I mean, we're not the milling people. We do mill. Uh, sometimes we have to. But first of all, we try to turn. And if turning doesn't work, we still try to turn. And uh, then we still try to turn. We, we still think that it's, it's faster and it's going to give you the, the better surface finish if you don't have to raster mill. And uh, I think most of these applications are dedicated turning applications. So diamond turning is is uh, the number one choice in optics manufacturing if, if it doesn't have to be grinding and polishing of glass, I would say. And uh, yeah, the, the question, why do they use inner light machines? That's, uh, that's a good one. As I've mentioned in the beginning, it's the productivity. So we've just sold a machine. They used to make a freeform mirror in six hours by conventional slow tool turning. Um, they're using our overdrive now and they cut down the time to 60 minutes. So that is, that is a significant uh, reduction in production time, at basically the same quality. And uh, this, is, this is one advantage and one reason. Um, the other, we're 15 years or even more younger compared to our competitors in the development. And um, yes, that's a lack of experience. But on the other hand, we have a totally different control system architecture and more up-to-date control system technology and software. I think for a machine tool builder, it's the worst to change the control system. Yeah, If, if you've been getting used to control system, that's a huge huge step and a lot of work and a lot of trouble. So we've just been younger and we've been starting with FPGAs, decentralized motion control and so on, 100 kilohertz uh, uh, frequency for the, for the position controller and so on. So for those customers who understand the benefit and have the product to, to basically reach out and go ahead, uh, there's, there's a reason. And, uh, we observe in our own mold making shop that we get jobs that could not have been done on regular diamond turning machines, especially if it's about microstructures. So these these uh, microstructures that are coming more and more into the spectrum um, require really high point density in order to have enough resolution, in order to have precise enough <coughs> surface finishes. And a regular CNC controller is just reaching the limits. And I think with our direct drive technology and the FPGAs, we can, we can push this limit and, and machine parts that could not be machined in a regular way. And what I also hear is we are dedicated to German industrial standards. So all our machines have a CE certification. They, they are certified and proved. And um, I think that is also appreciated. 
we used to buy the power cabinets uh, from a third party, but we've integrated all this and I think try to keep the, the quality and the standards at a high level. And uh, that's also being appreciated. You had uh, mentioned that precision mechanics are uh, an application you're starting to see some interest in for your machines. Are there any other novel applications that uh, people use them for? Well, I mean, the, the, the mechanics are, are uh, interesting to us. So there, there's um, activities in, in compressors and air turbines. There's activities in electrical cars, um, building heat sinks with the super, super accurate surfaces for good thermal transmission. Um, as I've said, we're, we're working on the border between diamond turning, ultra-precision machines, and the conventional glass world. I think if we manage to succeed with the femtosecond laser on the machine, um, I think this would really open up a whole new territory um, combining these two markets. We still stay in the field of optics. Uh, but we're addressing fused silica basically with the, with the diamond turning lathe. And this is, if you ask me about my favorite, I would say this is a really, really uh, good choice that I would go for. We see many other applications coming up in, in the optics market, also with high volume. For example, uh, inter-satellite communication, uh, point-to-point laser communication, uh, will require a lot of direct optics, so mirrors that need to be machined and a high volume. Yeah, the drawback of mold making, except of telmix, is that you usually don't make a whole lot of molds because you you generate uh, the volume by replicating. Um, but for these these uh, intersatellite applications, um, there's the need of a lot of mirrors, and uh, so this is coming up and seems to be quite interesting. Large, large area or large, large, uh, large size optics uh, are coming up for for uh, Earth to satellite communication. That's interesting. We're addressing this with a with a new development of the IL fifteen hundred. That's something we haven't talked about yet. And yeah, we're excited every day and uh, looking for new applications. And it's been going good so far. Our next question was going to be uh, what's happening in the next 10 years, but I think you've addressed that question already. Um, is there anything else that you see in the next 10 years within diamond turning and more specifically with Interlight? For the next 10 years, I, think, I, I see the need for more automation. Like I've said, we've been driving productivity. Uh, we've integrated or we've introduced an integrated zero-point clamping system. It's semi-automated. So... I think if we look at, for example, manufacturing targets for nuclear fusion, that's an application of diamond turning. If we think of, of also precision mechanics, volumes will be higher and higher and robot automation um, at that level of precision is something that we, we need to address. We've, we've talked about the new materials. That's what I definitely see for the next 10 years, expanding the process performance. Uh, by hybrid approaches, that's that's the answer basically. Um, first time right, optimization, uh, trying to understand machine and data set and and simulation of the machine behavior in a better way, to have a smart control. 
We're working on pre-calculating the currents for the drives in order to uh, optimize the, the dynamic performance, the dynamic following error. And uh, I think the simulation and, and the, the uh, uh, better understanding of the machine behavior is something that, that will be a big topic for the next 10 years. And as I've mentioned, large, large surfaces, we're, we're developing a vertical lathe right now. So this will basically the this will be the fifth uh, platform in our portfolio, uh, which will be capable of diamond turning uh, surfaces with a diameter of 1.5 meters um, to address large mirrors and also microlens manufacturing and in the field of energy and communication. And as it's a portal machine, we're quite excited to see the first prototype. We'll start building on that one uh, this year. Design basically has been finished, and that will give us a whole lot of new challenges and tasks to work on. Specifically on that machine, um, you have a great partnership with professional instrument company who make your spindles for your smaller machines. With this vertical turning machine uh, and such a large diameter, are you uh, looking at a different type of spindle, or are you looking at producing that yourselves? No, we're, 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 we will not get into the uh, spindle market, I think. Um, that's, that's a totally different world. Um, and as you've mentioned, we have a great partnership with professional uh, air bearing and uh, professional instruments, I'm sorry, uh, uh, for the air bearings. And um, they have the small air bearing spindles, but they also have very large air bearing spindles capable of uh, supporting 1.5 tons, so there's there's uh, no need to get into new spindle development for this kind of size of a machine. At the end of um, each podcast, Adam and I have sort of a, a, an in-house problem that we've either addressed or were addressing that's precision-related. So one day we might talk about, um, I think our favorite so far has been Adam putting uh, aquarium heater uh, uh heating elements in his coolant tank so that overnight his surface grinder temperature of the coolant tank doesn't drop too much. Um, so small things like that for me, I, I might be addressing something watchmaking related or job shop related. Um, but our viewers, it's not really about us. It's uh, our viewers really love hearing how these problems are being addressed. So on the scale of inner light, which is, you know, far, far bigger than many of um, what our viewers can really conceptualize i think your precision problems will be fascinating for everyone which one <laughs> so we have many precision problems uh another one that i like is is the tool height adjustment we haven't talked about that um so if you have a lathe you most likely will have a center artifact because your tool has not been set right. And we can talk about the scale of the center artifact. We can zoom in and that center artifact can be very small. But um, in the end, if you don't perfectly align the diamond tip to the center of rotation of the spindle, there's going to be um, an artifact. The IL-600 has a vertical lathe, so we can basically use a linear motor and a high-precision scale to actively align that. But for all these regular lathes, <clears throat> the topic of uh, height adjustment of the tool has not been solved <clears throat> to our satisfaction so far. Um, 
there's there's the solid body hinge basically it's a flexor joint and you rotate the tip um, and you adjust the height with that but if you do so you have two cantilevers uh, of different length and that's basically your your um, ratio or your your your, how do you say that, gear, I guess. Maybe you reach one to two, one to three um, of amplification or, or reduction. Yeah, so uh, you can achieve good values, but it's very difficult and it takes a lot. The alternative is to use a wedge. That's also state of the art. So there's a little slide uh, and it's a wedge basically. And if you, if you move that wedge, you adjust the height can also be done. But that wedge has an angle of, of five degrees, three degrees. So you have a um, translation ratio of maybe one to 10, one to 20 at the most. And uh, this is good to go to a micron, maybe a little bit below a micron, but not significantly lower. And uh, we've been dealing with this topic for quite some time. And uh, the latest development is to use hydraulics. So we're basically building a steel cushion, which is filled with oil. And that is the first piston, basically. And there's another piston significantly smaller uh, that we have connected to a bolt, basically. And we can, we can use the bolt to um, pressurize the oil in the small piston. And using these uh, uh, communicating pistons or these two pistons connected by the oil gives us the chance to have a, a ratio of one to one hundred um, in, in um, the reduction in, uh, ratio. The, re the reduction ratio. So the reduction ratio. Yeah. So the, with with the communicating or with with the with the hydraulic approach, we can have a reduction ratio of one to one hundred. Yeah. So this is a factor of 10 compared to the wedge and significantly more factor of 20 to 30 to the, the solid body inch. And uh, we're looking at um, minimum height steps of 0.1 micron uh, that we can uh, repeatedly adjust. And uh, this is a nice solution that was Jan's idea he had in light and he's been basically building up a test bench and He's been investigating on how to do all the sealing so the oil is not going to get out and to do the design and FEA-based calculation of the, of the uh, flexor joints inside the hydraulic system. Um, but we've, we've delivered the first machine with these units and it seems to work very nicely. And uh, we have good correlations between the pressure inside and the, the height. So we're, we're hoping that we can turn this into a standard and uh, basically give a good solution to the precision problem of height adjustment in, in uh, diamond tools on diamond lathes. I hope that was clean enough, but uh, that's, that's basically, if you take a, if you take a, a flexor joint, your reduction rate is not very big. It's one to two, one to three maybe, and it's all about the length of the, the cantilevers on the two sides of the flexor. And if you take the wedge, it's basically the sign, the, the, sine of five degrees, sine of 10 degrees or three degrees maybe, and, and you're at a factor of 10. And uh, with these hydraulics, we, we can have a reduction rate of one to 100. And uh, so 
you can you can achieve significantly higher accuracy in in motion at low cost. I mean, of course, you can integrate a linear motor and you can build a hydrostatic slide and you can use the high precision optical encoder, but all of a sudden you're, you're looking at fifty thousand euros for for the components of such a linear axis, and the idea is to build a low cost, super high precision actuation system that's basically going to do the job. Wow, what an amazing podcast. Thank you very much, Christian, for devoting your time and spending it uh, spending it with us. And thank you for being flexible in organizing three different time zones to meet. Adam and I both uh, loved researching and recording this podcast, and we hope that you guys, the listeners, also enjoyed. So please get in contact, and um, we'll see you in the next one.